Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We're speaking on the morning of Monday, January 23rd, 2023. We are continuing to analyze the situation surrounding the ongoing vacancy for a permanent chief judge of New York, the position that sits at the head of the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals, and oversees the state's extensive court system. It is a position of immense power and influence that has gotten far more attention in recent months and maybe a year or two than in the past and has the overall role of the Court of Appeals in New York become front and center in a lot of conversations around politics, policy, organizing, and the importance of the judiciary here in New York. The state Senate Judiciary Committee last week voted down Governor Kathy Hochul's nominee for chief judge, Hector LaSalle, in a narrow vote. And the Democratic governor, who just won her first term in the job, is threatening to sue for a full state Senate vote on the nomination, where she would almost certainly be counting on the chamber's Republicans to help confirm her nominee. The politics of all this has gotten quite messy. Many people, including Democratic state senators, labor union leaders, and others, had tried to avoid the contentiousness around LaSalle's nomination by giving certain warnings or trying to influence Hochul's selection in various ways, but she did not heed those, and she has gone on to claim that the process was unfair toward LaSalle. There was a very large movement organized against LaSalle or any other potential nominee who was seen as too conservative by progressive activists and some others with a lot at stake in this pick, like labor unions and the direction of the state's court of appeals and larger court system. My guest today has been one of the lead organizers of that effort to see the next chief judge of New York be a more progressive jurist and leader. Peter F. Martin is with me. He's an organizer and a lawyer with a varied resume who currently works for the Center for Community Alternatives, running a project to get more progressive judges on state courts in New York and focus on larger judicial accountability. In that effort, he's helped organize and run The Court New York Deserves, a coalition focused on moving the Court of Appeals in a more progressive direction, in part as a bulwark against the conservative U.S. Supreme Court, and in part to take a different approach than the Court of Appeals has been taking under its recent leadership and majority block. Peter F. Martin will join me in a minute. Hochul selected Hector LaSalle from a list of seven options provided by the Commission on Judicial Nomination after it underwent its mandated process. The governor's selection must be approved by the state Senate in order to be seated. The full rationale for Hochul's choice of LaSalle has not been explained, but she's appeared to focus on LaSalle's experience and qualifications, as well as addressing criticism about the lack of Latino representation at the highest levels of state government and state democratic politics. LaSalle would be the first Latino chief judge of New York. But Hochul's pick was opposed as too conservative by many progressive and some moderate legislators, several labor unions, reproductive rights advocates, and others. And that opposition to LaSalle had in many cases been made clear to the governor before she chose him from the list of seven presented to her. Hochul had tried to pitch LaSalle publicly, but may have made her case too late. And she also appears to have both disregarded many warnings to not nominate him or others deemed too conservative from the list 
and not done the political work to try to shore up support for him ahead of the announcement or even very soon thereafter. And that includes relationships with labor unions like the AFL-CIO, which quickly criticized the nomination after Hochul made it on December 22nd, related to some of the rulings that LaSalle had been part of. Again, this is not as simple as a progressive versus moderate or progressive versus conservative political battle. In some ways, it surely is, but not entirely. LaSalle made his own case, again, perhaps after his fate had already been decided by the Senate Judiciary Committee in an hours-long hearing on Wednesday, January 18th. He and his defenders in the Senate pushed back pretty hard on the idea that he's conservative. He attested to his pro-choice viewpoint, among other statements of values that he presented, and he debated some of his most controversial rulings with skeptical state senators but he was unable to win over enough of the Democrats on the committee. Now, there are questions about Hochul's choice and how she tried to win enough support for him, but there are also questions about and criticism of that list from the Commission on Judicial Nomination and whether it had purposefully excluded certain names because of political and judicial rivalries, among other reasons. Perhaps the most glaring omission was Judge Jenny Rivera, the longest tenured justice on the Court of Appeals, who was passed over for both acting chief judge and on the list of nominees sent to Hochul, perhaps indicative of her many dissents from the majority block led by the now former chief judge, Janet DeFiori. There's a lot more background here, but I'll leave it there for now, and we'll get into the details of much of what's happened and what happens next with my guest, Peter F. Martin, in just a moment. First, very briefly, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts, or at the Gotham Gazette website. They include a conversation from late last week with State Senator Jessica Ramos, who's on the Judiciary Committee of the State Senate and voted against advancing LaSalle to the full Senate. She's a progressive Democrat, Latina from Queens, who chairs the Senate Labor Committee. We got into her rationale for voting against advancing LaSalle and larger issues around the nomination and much more. I've had a number of other great guests and conversations in recent weeks and months, including with State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins, who previewed what was to come for the LaSalle nomination, telling me that she didn't see it working out the way the governor wanted. There was more that unfolded after that. And I've also been joined recently by the borough presidents of Brooklyn and Queens, Antonio Reynoso and Donovan Richards, and a bunch of other great guests Find any or all of those after you listen to this one at Max Politics or the Gotham Gazette site. And of course, at GothamGazette.com, you can also find all of our reporting on New York politics and government. Okay. Joining me today to discuss the background, the effort to defeat Hector LaSalle as the chief judge nominee of Governor Kathy Hochul, the campaign to appoint a more progressive chief judge and other justices on the Court of Appeals, and what comes next is... Peter F. Martin. He's an organizer and lawyer with a varied resume who currently works for the Center for Community Alternatives, running a project to get more progressive judges on state courts in New York and larger judicial accountability. And in that effort, he's helped organize and run the court New York deserves. Peter, thanks for being here. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. All right. Anything I get wrong there in my in my long introduction? Anything, anything I missed or where, 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 where do you want to uh, question some of my framing or how, how was I, how did I do there? You did perfect. That was great. Okay. All right, good. Well, I appreciate that. So 
The work you're doing around reshaping the New York State Court of Appeals, try to um, capture for people the importance of this. How do you frame um, the importance of the role of the Court of Appeals in New Yorkers' lives, in, um, in, in the law of the land here in New York? How do you frame that for folks? Courts are important in some ways that I think New Yorkers and Americans appreciate, and in lots of ways that many people don't fully appreciate. Uh, we certainly have an appreciation, most of us do, that courts are part of the government with a lots of legal authority over our lives, um, whether that is broad legal authority to change law and um, in many cases, in fact, create law, or as in the trial courts, to make determinations over individuals um, with you know, huge sweeping consequences about liberty and um, you know who goes to jail, who can stay in the country, questions like that. So some of this is widely appreciated and really visceral, but a lot of it isn't. Um, of course, courts are not for the most part, elected. There are you know, some elected judges in New York and elsewhere, but I think most Americans don't appreciate or think of courts the way we think of our executives and our legislators and don't have the same sense of a kind of democratic interplay between us as citizens and courts and judges generally. And so a part of the, the focus of my project, the, the project I, I run at CCA, is just raising the visibility and the salience of courts in New Yorkers' minds and raising the awareness that we actually have some power over courts and courts on some level have to be accountable to us as citizens and people in this country and in this state. I can say more about you know specific goals and priorities, but that's a, I think a high level answer. Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you. And yeah, we'll get into more specifics in a second. Um, well, I'd say in some sense, clearly there's been success around raising the profile of courts and and getting people to you know look a little closer at the role of of courts and and how the the nomination and selection process goes. Obviously, there's been so much attention on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, always over, you know, over history, but also in, you know, the last um, bunch of years, especially since, uh, you know, what happened with Barack Obama trying to uh, nominate Merrick Garland and and Mitch McConnell's Senate not uh, considering it and then into the Trump years. Um, but in New York, um, this has really taken a turn in the last couple of years. Describe the focus and the and the shift in focus on the Court of Appeals um, as this uh, discussion around Hector LaSalle's nomination has been ongoing. A lot of people have said, you know, Andrew Cuomo uh, as governor uh, nominated and appointed uh, basically, you know, the, the full Court of Appeals and in virtually every instance – the state Senate just sort of um, rubber stamped the nomination and, and put put his nominees on the court. Uh, there was a, a significant battle recently, uh, nothing of this scale, but a, sort of a preview of it over the nomination of Madeline Singas to the court, where progressive legislators uh, or, or so-called progressives, you know, it depends who you're talking to, but, um, you know, state Senate Deputy Leader Michael Janaris really went to bat for her while a lot of progressives opposed the nomination is too conservative. He later said he regretted supporting her because she joined the more conservative majority block in the court. 
Um, so say a little bit about those last couple of years and how the discussion around the New York Court of Appeals seems to have shifted in, in New York. And obviously, your organizing work has been a, a part of that. You're absolutely right to situate the conversation about the Court of Appeals in the context of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court, as we all know, is dramatically reshaping the rights of Americans in all states and doing so in a way that I think is um, you know, offensive and frightening to many New Yorkers. So that, you know, what's happening at the federal level, I think has primed New Yorkers to pay more attention to our state courts, to care more deeply about whether our state courts, especially, of course, the Court of Appeals, our highest court is protecting our rights or undermining it, them, um, or otherwise taking actions to, you know, to, to protect us or not. Um, given that, Everything you described at the Court of Appeals is also accurate and really important context for what's happening now. I'm not a legal historian. Other people can certainly say what I'm about to say with you know, more knowledge and, and better than I can. But yeah, let me go back just a little bit to elaborate on, on what you laid out. The So Governor Cuomo was governor for over a decade. Um, Court of Appeals terms are 14 years, but many judges either don't serve them out or unfortunately we've had a couple untimely deaths of sitting Court of Appeals judges in the last decade. Additionally, there's a mandatory retirement age of 70. So any judge who's appointed at a, you know, older than age 56 won't serve a full 14 years. And so what that means is over Cuomo's time as governor, he was able to appoint all of the judges on the Court of Appeals. So at the moment he stepped down, the court was entirely his court. Now, he appointed judges who had some degree of ideological diversity, a little bit of professional diversity, and that was a result of him negotiating with the state Senate, who has confirmation authority over gubernatorial nominees to the Court of Appeals. One sort of notable moment, or actually two notable moments, one of the seven judges that Cuomo appointed, Michael Garcia, is a registered Republican who served in two different capacities in the administration of President George W. Bush. And that was because at the time, Republicans controlled the New York State Senate and made clear they demanded a Republican nominee from Cuomo and he obliged. You know, they were working out um, deals, lots if you of will. Deals. Lots yeah, of lots of deals. Yeah. So Garcia, uh, you know, Cuomo appoints a Republican for that reason. Also, Cuomo, when he appointed or when he nominated Judge Jenny Rivera, the Republicans controlled the Senate and they had objections to her. I think it was as simple as they thought she was too far to the left. Maybe there were other things in her background they objected to. And so, you know, there were all sorts of negotiations going on when Cuomo was governor. That's sort of general background of how we got the court we have now. The other thing, you know, the I think two or three really critical things that have set us up for where we are is when Donald Trump won election in 2016, um, New Yorkers started paying attention to state politics in a way they hadn't under Obama or before. And so your listeners are very well aware of the IDC. Um, you know, this is now several years in the past, but there was a real, I think, public uprising. Maybe that's a little too strong of a word, but a public um you know, a political uprising, certainly. a political uprising <laughs> yeah. against how yeah. things were, you know, pre 2018. And so in 2018, finally, Democrats retake the state Senate um, due to, you know, booting out IDC members and booting out some Republicans. And things didn't immediately change for the Court of Appeals. Cuomo got, what was it, two more appointments after that. 
he appointed Madeline Singus and Anthony Conataro right at the end of it, what turned out to be the end of his term right before right. he resigned. And the state Senate, this was in summer 2020, the state Senate still functionally rubber stamped those nominations. Um, you alluded to Senator Janaris and others now saying publicly that that was a mistake. That was a mistake substantively because of who those judges have been on the court. But I think we're hearing from senators, including Senator Janaris this morning in, a, in an opinion piece in City and state saying the era of rubber stamping was a mistake, regardless of who we confirmed to the court. We as the state Senate should have then been doing our constitutional due diligence, and we're going to do that now. And so, you know, I know I'm a little bit all over the place, but just no, to okay. you know, fully situate this, we have Cuomo nominating the full court, um, the Senate for a while going along with him, or you know, Republicans perhaps putting up some fight, but Democrats not really doing so. And what that produced was a court that was ideologically conservative. Um, that was, I think, mostly the product of Janet Fiore, who Governor Cuomo put on the court as an ally, to be an ally of his in 2016. And then she, in fact, was a strong ally in lots of ways. Then she, through the various powers of the chief judge, was able to get more judges after her who were at least somewhat ideologically aligned with her. And so by this past summer, summer 2021, when, or sorry, summer 2022, when Judge DeFiore announced she was resigning, there was a- Several years early, by the way. Three years before the end of yeah. her term, amid ethics investigations, some of which have, you know, have been reported on. I'm sure there's yeah. more that has not been publicly reported. Um, what happened, or, or the state we got to by then was a court that had a- very cohesive for judge conservative majority block. And when we say conservative majority block, we're not talking about registered Republicans. Only one of the four was a Republican, but these were four judges who across numerous legal areas sided with the litigants and the political sides that we're familiar with conservative siding with. So that can be, you know, in criminal cases, overwhelmingly siding with the prosecution over defendants in some civil cases where you have large corporations versus individual person litigants or less powerful litigants siding with the large corporations. Um, and at times siding against a legislature that made clear it's mandate from the voters was to pursue progressive legislation and the Court of Appeals in at least one notable case and, and some smaller cases um, striking down that progressive legislation on various legal grounds, but all of it with the effect of either perpetuating conservative policy or making the law, in fact, more conservative in some ways. And so that's the context in which we got this chief judge vacancy and you know advocates started intervening and state senators were um, more eager to take a more active role than they had in the past. I'm glad you got into a bit of a definition of, of how you're you know talking about con conservatism here because I wanted to ask you and and something you know I'm asking others as well who who are sort of on your side of the the aisle and your side of the argument here, which is, Elections in New York seem to show that sort of generally speaking, this is a crude way to put it, but, you know, sort of Andrew Cuomo politics, center-ish, uh, center-left, certainly, um, you know, is sort of the sort of the prevailing New York politics when you even it all out. If you look at how Lee Zeldin just did in the gubernatorial election, um, you know, obviously New York is a liberal to progressive state overall, but there's also something to be said for 
the general gist of the nominees that Andrew Cuomo put on the Court of Appeals is sort of generally indicative of his politics and the politics of New York writ large. How do you argue that, you know, a significantly more sort of progressive vision for this court is indicative of what New York New Yorkers want from the Court of Appeals? It's a great question, and I'm not a political scientist or a yes. political theorist. I think right. you're I you're you're running you're running a a certain uh, coalition and and a political project, but but go ahead. Yeah. yeah, and I you know I have no I have no disputes with how you frame that, but I'll just note I think people can disagree. People do disagree with exactly how far left or right New York State is in the media New Yorker, and I think you pointed to some data points suggesting the state is maybe center left. Um, it's also, you know, what's our reference point? Is it the United States? New York is certainly distinctly to the left of the United States overall. Um, the state of New York is probably to the right of the city of New York. So, you know, the reference points matter. Um, you're right that in recent decades, most of the governors New York has elected have been fairly moderate, whether they're you know, moderate Democrats or going back to the 90s, moderate Republicans. Um, but that's, I think, only one you know, one data point we can gather from election results. The fact is the state Senate is a distinctly progressive body at this point. It is you know made up of 42 Democrats out of 63 seats. And those Democrats are progressively more progressive with each election. You know, the, the recent election just, what, two, three months ago now elected a more progressive Democratic conference than previously was in the body. And so, you know, we can point to Governor Hochul's narrow re-election over a conservative Trump-supporting Republican to draw some conclusions. And we can look at the state Senate you know, results. We can look at U.S. House results. There are all sorts of data points. I mean, this, this assembly has been in Democratic hands for decades, and the assembly has been um, you know, passing, legis passing, passing progressive legislation for, for many years. So um, I don't have you know, an overall agreement or disagreement. I just mean to note that um, when I look at the, the collection of elected officials we have, and also it's worth noting the kinds of things that New Yorkers um, organize for that aren't reflected neatly in election outcomes, what I see is a state whose values are clearly on the progressive side of things. And again, you can define that in different ways and it means different things, whether you're talking about criminal law, civil law, um, other, other areas of policy. Um, but it's a state that I think is clearly calling for a legal landscape um, different from and to the left of what the Court of Appeals has been giving us in recent years. And you make an interesting, you know, framing of that in terms of, um, you know, a court that, um, you know, seems to err on the side of rule on the side very often of the sort of more powerful, uh, you know, in different ways where, again, you get, you know, labor unions that are not necessarily these lefty organizations, you know, coming in to oppose um, LaSalle on, on certain cases. Was was there anything um any any aspect of this discussion where you felt some sympathy for Hector LaSalle, you know, he was clearly in that hearing sort of uh, uh, almost a bit miffed about the way that his record was being described and how he'd been attacked. And he was, from what I could tell, remarkably frank about some of his broader value statements for, a you know, a, a nominee to a, a very high judicial appointment. I, I couldn't believe some of the things that he was saying uh, in terms of his personal values um, to try to sort of set the record straight. 
you know, he saw, for example, and we can't get into the details of a lot of these cases, feel free to throw out examples as you'd like, but, you know, he saw certain rulings as just very sort of cut and dry factual procedural decisions that were not reflective of his values. People could clearly say, listen, there was a dissent in the case where people said, you know, Cablevision should not be suing these individual union leaders. And, you know, he had his rationale for that, but there were dissents in the case that he did not join. Um, so, so there's various ways to parse some of it. But, you know, this was a guy clearly going in, in front of these state senators and saying, like, I, I don't know who who you're talking about here with all this criticism. Like, I'm a pretty liberal to progressive guy. Was there any anything he said where you sort of uh, could understand the way he was talking about it? Or is it just that he comes from a judicial philosophy that's too conservative for, for you and other organizers of your movement where you're saying, we get where you're coming from. It's just not what we we want for the Court of Appeals. Yeah, I, I really appreciate long, that long question. question. And, yeah. Well, and it's all it's all uh, meaningful. I was gonna say it's all accurate. Obviously I might describe things a little differently, sure, but sure. no, it's, it's a, it's a great framing and a great question because first I credit justice LaSalle for how he handled the hearing. As you said, he was very clear, you know, un, unequivocal that he owned his record. He stood by it. Um, and he made defenses of that record that I thought were substantive, if you will. Um, you know, he explained why he had done the things he had done, one thing that has come out in recent weeks, and I think this is sort of, uh, if not the central answer to your question, one of the big ones, both Justice LaSalle in his hearing and many of his defenders over the last month have responded to criticisms of his record to say variations of Justice LaSalle is in the mainstream of New York appellate judges, that legally he's in the mainstream sort of behaviorally, he's doing what other judges are doing. And so one thing to bring up, because it's separate from the disputes about ideology and the thrust of jurisprudence and all of that. So he's currently the presiding justice of the second department, which is the busiest of the four appellate division departments in the state. Um, he's from Suffolk County, the department he oversees covers Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island, Westchester, a couple other counties. So it's a lot of the state, a lot of the state's people and a lot of the state's litigation. Um, it's a it's a court that everyone familiar with it acknowledges is overworked in some ways that there, you know, ideally should be more judges handling the volume of cases. And so at least parses quickly and um you could say not sufficiently you know the decisions coming out of the second department many of them are very short many of them don't analyze all of the facts um and sometimes even the legal arguments that the litigants are putting forward in front of the the, the court rather for example one of the two cases that got the most attention in the hearing um, I forget which of, but one of them was only 333 words long. That is a very short decision. Um, what that means is you have some decisions that the second department, I mean, these are these are cases with really um, dramatic consequences on New Yorkers' rights, on the state of law, um, that minimal analysis and minimal explanation. Now, some of Justice LaSalle's defenders have pointed to these short decisions and the fact that many of them are what are known as memorandum decisions, which are decisions written by court clerks and very often unsigned. So the, the names of the justice, sorry, the names of the justices who participate in the court cases will be listed, but they won't even be 
fully signed by them. It'll be like the opinion of the court, here are the judges who participated. People are pointing to these facts saying, what can you expect from, what can you ask for from a judge who's been on such a busy court for so many years? How can he write longer decisions? How can he sign more decisions? And there's some validity to that. But it's critical to note, we're talking about the chief judge of the entire state. We're talking about someone who will sit on the highest court, who will shape the, you know, shape the law for the whole state for years to come, and the person who will be responsible for overseeing the bureaucratic side of the entire state court system. If that person has not been able to engage deeply with the law, that person has that fairly analyze the, the legal questions and the facts presented to them, we have no indication that, that that person is ready to be a high court judge who will, in fact, deeply analyze these important and difficult legal questions and produce decisions that are um, that are right for the state, that are thoughtful enough for New Yorkers. So, you know, you asked the question was, was anything sympathetic? I, I'm sympathetic to judges who are dealing with a court system that has lots of problems. And also someone in his position is responsible for some of those problems. He's only been presiding justice for a year and a half. And I don't mean to say that anyone can solve all the problems for, you know, in such a short time, but he's responsible for making progress. And it wasn't it's not apparent to me or other advocates from our review of his record what improvements he's made. And in the hearing, he couldn't point to uh, improvements that satisfied the senators on that front. So we're we're basically left with someone who, on a human level, uh, can be sympathetic to many of us. And his record might be you know, defensible in some ways. But we're talking about a position of such power, such authority, um, that someone with a record, both the sort of if you will, like legal and ideological results of his decisions and the um, the real shallowness. That sounds too critical, but, you know, shallowness of like quantity and analysis in the decisions that he can point to. Um, I just don't think is and, and many people, including the Senate, the you know, members of the Judiciary Committee, clearly uh, don't think such a person is right for this role. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, the, the purpose here, in part, in this conversation, is not even to relitigate, um, you know, the the nomination of Justice LaSalle. It's it's about this larger project um, that he 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 became sort of uh, in the crosshairs of, which is to remake the Court of Appeals, remake the New York court system. And when the Commission on Judicial Nomination came out with its list of seven seven nominees for Governor Hochul. Um, you know, you, you're the the organization that you're working with and and helping lead the efforts of, um, you know, quickly said that LaSalle was among three deemed unacceptable based on their records to you, while there were others that were deemed uh, appropriate, acceptable to you. So this is about a much larger, larger picture, picture, of course, than Judge LaSalle. So Say a little bit about um, is is there a particular goal here about for for who the next chief judge of New York will be? Was there a lot of frustration around Judge Jenny Rivera not being on that nomination list? Is that something that if this process does restart from the beginning, you're really hoping that she will be on the list and maybe she uh, could find herself in that in that top seat? Um, say a little bit about who you who you do want to be the, the next chief judge. 
Yeah, thanks for that. Before um, looking forward, which you're absolutely right, now we are. We, we all don't know need what's going to gonna happen here. <laughs> right, right. But Before yeah. we look forward, I'll look back a little bit just to, to yeah. flesh out what you just said. So, um, former Chief Judge Janet Fiore announced her resignation on July 11th. So, a little more than six months ago, her res, uh, resignation took effect on August 31st. And so we snapped to action immediately upon that announcement. We had, um, you know, previously engaged with the Court of Appeals. I was working on a project that was engaging with the state courts generally at all levels. And so we had a number of, um, priorities, principles, values that we were um, seeking to bring to advocacy around the state courts generally. And now this huge vacancy was about to open up. Um, so beginning in July, I worked with uh, advocates and, and you know employees, people involved with many other organizations around the state and some national organizations. We quickly, we had a series of conversations to collectively decide what what do we think is most important uh, from the next chief judge in the next, uh, you know, in, from the Court of Appeals in coming years? And our first sort of product that came out of that was an open letter to Governor Hochul, which we sent to her office on August 15th. That letter was signed by over 110 organizations, again, most of them New York based, but from all over the state. There were a handful of national organizations um, signed on as well, organizations that take an interest in courts generally. And so we laid out in a three and a half page letter what we wanted to see. Um, following that, we waited a number of months for, as you said, the Commission on Judicial Nomination to do its work. Um, it produced its list of candidates right before Thanksgiving, and we saw who those candidates were. We did an immediate deep dive into their records. We had predicted some of the candidates because we thought they were likely applicants. Someone like Justice LaSalle, for example, was high up in the court system. So he was among people who we thought might be on the list. But also among the people that we expected to be on the list were some of the Court of Appeals judges that you noted as really striking omissions. So Judge Jenny Rivera and Judge Rowan Wilson being the two most traumatic omissions each of them has been on the Court of Appeals for at least five or six years now. They are the two judges who, especially as the court has moved to the right, and especially as its conservative bloc has cohered in recent years, those two have been um, consistent dissenters from the court's recent conservative jurisprudence, laying out a really different vision of New York state law, which really is in some ways just an upholding of the tradition of New York state law that the Court of Appeals has been moving away from. So each of them is... You know, more than qualified to be chief judge in part because they already sit on the court. They have been judges for years. They've been uh, making very clear what they believe the you know, direction of state law should be. They have familiarity with the court system. And then, as you said, they were both left off the list of candidates. Um, the commission's work is confidential. Um, uh, you know, the rest of us who are not on the commission can only speculate, but I think we can sort of speculate to why the commission did what it did. But we can also make some declarative statements just based on who was included and who was not included. So one statement we can make is the omission of these two court of appeals judges when multiple candidates with less relevant experience and, and less experience period were included suggests that merit in a way that I think most people would understand it was not 
necessarily an overwhelming consideration of the commission when it was reviewing the applicants that it got several months ago. Um, if merit were the top consideration, then I think there would be no question but that Judge Rivera and Judge Wilson would be included. So you asked, I believe, something like, you know, how we feel about the omission. I think it, you know, just on a basic level, anytime judges with that experience are omitted, there's something of a like, if I were them, I'd be personally insulted. I'm not them, so I, I don't care for that. You know, I don't need to look out for their interests as individuals, but it says something about the commission that they were not included. And it also constrained the hand of the governor. You know, had the governor got a list of seven candidates whose records were deeper, more proven, she could have potentially made a better choice. Now, as you said, we, the, the coalition, the court in New York deserves in analyzing the records of the seven candidates deemed three of them to be not just acceptable, but really excellent. So I don't mean to say that the whole list was bad. Um, Governor Hochul certainly could have chosen one or more candidates who would have been wonderful, who we would have celebrated, who we would have urged the state Senate to confirm. But it is also the case that there were other candidates who would have been excellent that she couldn't even choose had she wanted to. And I think that speaks to some other issues that um, you know we can get into in this conversation or might require other conversations. Um, but you know, it, it, there were multiple parts in this process that were a real shame. And so is there is there a short list from your coalition that that, you know, if this process does restart in full that you want to see on this list? Have you not you know, do you not want to be that specific? You want to more lay out the principles you outline and then react to the list that comes from the Commission on Judicial Nomination? Or do you have your own short list? So we definitely don't have our own new hypothetical shortlist. That's, as you said, it is likely, it's almost certain that the process will start over. The governor, as of you know today, is still disputing that Justice Lasalle has been formally and legally rejected, but the Senate is insisting as much. And um, as, as you noted earlier in the conversation, there is not a there's not a visible path to his confirmation at this point. And so if that is how things play out, the process will start over at some point. And then all of us are back to not entirely just waiting because you know we've been seeking to intervene from the beginning and we'll keep seeking to shape the process. But in terms of a shortlist, we do have to see what the commission does. What I would say is the, the principles, the priorities, the values that we laid out beginning in July and August remain true, right? We said we need a new chief judge who... XYZ. I mean, some of the, the most notable things that we laid out is a chief judge who has a proven record of understanding the law's power to um, either advance or limit the rights of all New Yorkers and understand the law's power to either protect or harm the most marginalized New Yorkers. All of that remains true. And so we will be you know, we're calling on the commission to produce a new list when it does of multiple candidates, ideally seven candidates with records like that. And then we'll call on the governor to nominate a candidate like that. Um, so to your question about the commission, you know, assuming that people who we know applied last time applied, I would hope that one or more of the three candidates who we promoted this past time, and since they haven't been named yet, I'll name them, um, Judge Edwina Richardson Mendelssohn, 
Professor Abby Gluck and uh, Corey Stoughton, who's an attorney at Legal Aid, a, a, you know, a leader at Legal Aid, you know, we would be thrilled to see any or all of them on a new shortlist. We would also be thrilled to see Judge Jenny Rivera and Judge Rowan Wilson on a new shortlist. And there are surely other people who either did apply last time or might choose to apply with a new vacancy um, who we would want to see on a shortlist. But we're at a stage of, of such, you know, all of this is so hypothetical that we have no yeah, they are among a universe of many people who would be great to see on on such a short list. We're in our last few minutes here. You're listening to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm speaking with Peter F. Martin, an organizer and an attorney uh, who works with the Center for Community Alternatives and has been running efforts to, as they say, shape the court New York deserves, focused on the Court of Appeals uh, and other courts in New York and broader judicial accountability, uh, coming from a coming from a left uh, progressive uh, viewpoint, uh, in terms of the organizing that went into this effort, um, any any big takeaways? Anything that popped out to you? You were you were obviously um, very deep into the the political advocacy and organizing here, and that's. Uh, you know, that's a campaign, right? And you had to get more people's attention on this nomination process. I assume you had to try to, you know, continuously sort of keep tabs on sort of the 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 whipping of votes or the vote count or where things stood in the state Senate in terms of support and opposition. And that's mostly focused in the Judiciary Committee, but then it's also, of course, the broader state Senate and the Democratic Conference, and then understanding the landscape as that how Republicans in the state Senate, even in their pretty small minority, might influence the process. Um, but, you know, there's there's rallies, there's op-eds, there's all the usual stuff. But any big takeaways from your viewpoint in terms of anything you were able to particularly do or any keys to what, you know, it might be a little bit early to call a success of your campaign, but, um, but, but the success you've had so far, at least, um, any keys that you'd want to point to for people in this, in this organizing and advocacy effort that you help run? I think the biggest key is how many people have cared about this from the beginning. Um, I was so incredibly heartened that when we started our outreach to other organizations and then started outreach to senators, um, how many organizations, senators, individual New Yorkers appreciated that this mattered and appreciated why it mattered and that there was a role for them to play, whatever their, you know, sort of their role in New York State was. Again, there was a role for organizations, for senators, for constituents, et cetera. Um, I mentioned earlier in our conversation that in August, we got over 110 organizations to sign on to a public letter. Uh, the coalition only grew from there. Uh, I forget the latest number, but it's certainly over 150 now. That's not including other organizations that sort of put out their own statements in opposition to the recent nominee, but haven't sort of formally joined the coalition. And we're going to be working to you know, continue to align everyone and keep organizing well among everyone who cares about this. Um, but that's been very heartening from the beginning. Um, it's worth noting the sort of collaboration with, or at least um, you know, conversations with senators, because that's also been pivotal um, all the way back in, you know, we started having our first conversations around this vacancy with individual senators the week that the vacancy opened up in July. Um, by September, enough senators cared about this and had, you know, engaged, whether it was with us or with their colleagues, that 20 senators signed a letter um, sent to the Commission on Judicial Nomination to outline their top priorities, which 
in broad strokes aligned with ours, but they were articulated differently. They didn't echo everything that that we had put out there because they have their own um, you know, vantage point on this and their own interests. And so what we had forming in the late summer and early fall was both a coalition in the classic sense, but also a real if you will, ecosystem of different people who cared about this, different people who are bringing a degree of attention and care to the nomination um, and who wanted to play a role appropriate to, to whoever they were, a role in shaping it. Um, so where we are now, I mean, you, I think, are entirely right that we, in one way, have had a degree of success. I don't want to downplay the fact that we were able to collectively working with the Senate block the nomination of a of a candidate who would have been wrong for the state and wrong as chief judge, but we're far from done with the effort. Um, from the very beginning, our campaign and our demands have been positive, affirmative, open-ended. We've been calling for a chief judge with a set of values and a sort of set of um, experiences that they can point to. And we haven't gotten that yet. You know, right now we have no chief judge nominee. So in a way, as you said, we're we're back to the beginning. <laughs> we're going back soon to the beginning. And um, everything we've been laying out is is still at play. And so the ultimate um, victory, and I don't say victory from a campaign standpoint, but victory for New Yorkers is, is yet to be won. I remain confident that it will be won, um, but there's more work to be done and it'll be work that we will, you know, we'll build on everything we've done so far, bringing more organizations into the formal coalition, more New Yorkers into the very informal ecosystem of people paying attention to this and engaging with this. Um, and then I hope we'll continue working with members of the Senate um, so that, you know, they continue to play a positive role in this. And lastly, I'll note, we have interacted with the governor's office. We had, I personally was part of two meetings with members of her staff. Other people aligned with us have had meetings with her staff, perhaps even with the governor herself. Um, it was our hope from the beginning that we would have a real collaborative relationship and process with her. And I think that um, at times we did. Obviously, we've had to be oppositional to this nominee in, you know, over the last month. Um, but it's our our greatest hope that we can work collaboratively with her office um, as we move forward, as we get a new you know vacancy and set of candidates and nominee, um, and can you know get a new nominee that all of us can celebrate. And um, and that echoes you know some of course of what Democratic state senators like Deputy Leader Michael Janaris and even the Senate Majority Leader Andrew Stewart Cousins and and others have basically said, which is you know. This is not really a fight that we that we want, you know, we, um, but but obviously different political considerations have gone in different directions. Just lastly, if there is a lawsuit, if the governor is successful or, you know, this somehow nomination continues and it's going to go to the full state Senate for a vote, I mean, your campaign then kicks into uh, a different uh, gear to try to ensure that Hector LaSalle is, is defeated in that vote? That's right. If the full Senate votes, um, of course, we will continue engaging the way we have been and calling on the Senate to once again reject his nomination. Um, I would note, however, that if it goes that way, we advocates will not be the only ones who have a real personal interest in the Senate voting no. It would go to a full floor vote 
if the governor sues the Senate and if the governor wins that lawsuit, and of course, we've heard from the majority leader and the deputy majority leader and the Judiciary Committee chair and individual senators, um, that that would be received as a real attack on the independence of the legislature, um, an attack on the Senate's power to run its own affairs. And so I don't want to make any predictions and I don't want to say we're going to take a hands-on approach because, of course, we wouldn't. Um, but that would such a vote would implicate both the merits of Justice LaSalle, which, you know, that were that was the entirety of what the Judiciary Committee considered. But it would also get at real questions of separation of powers and good government and um, a fundamental relationship between the governor and the Senate. Those are not considerations that this campaign and this coalition um, really are going to engage with. Um, but we know that they're considerations that the Senate cares a lot about. Right. They're, they're right. They're part of the political uh, playing field that you your coalition cares a lot about. Right. So it's uh, part of the possibility of dissuading that that lawsuit and not continuing the battle over this nomination. All right, we could uh, we could get into a whole lot more, but our our time has come to an end here. Peter F. Martin, thank you for joining me. Uh, Peter Martin is uh, an organizer and a lawyer who works at the Center for Community Alternatives and has been running a project related to judicial accountability and then also uh, to get more progressive judges on state courts in New York, including the Court New York Deserves campaign focused on the Court of Appeals. Peter, thanks very much for all the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. It's been a real pleasure to talk about all of this with you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks very much. (laughs) 